Well, good morning again. If you are visiting with us this morning, let me also welcome you this morning. My name is John Stork. I'm the interim uh, pastor here at Res Press, uh, at least for a few more weeks. Uh, this morning we are coming to our final sermon uh, of our summer series that we entitled Old Testament Prophet Radio, Listening in Our Times. And next week we will begin a brief three-week sermon series entitled Eating with God, where we will look at three passages where a meal is served uh, in the gospel according to John and where we will consider what that tells us about the very gospel of Jesus Christ. But this morning, however, this is our final, again, our final week looking at Old Testament prophets and this final prophet we are hearing from is Zechariah. <clears throat> And Zechariah was a prophet who was ministering to the post-exilic people of God after they had come back from bondage. And not surprisingly, uh, the book of Zechariah is actually full of themes and ideas and topics that we have actually seen before uh, in the sermon series. For instance, the centrality of the temple and its restoration. References to God as the Lord of hosts, calls to repentance, God's promise to vindicate his people and defeat their enemies, references to the day, which is shorthand for the day of the Lord. But Zechariah is unique, however, in that he is actually referred to more than any other minor prophet by New Testament writers. In fact, Next to the Psalms, Zechariah is the most quoted book of the entire Old Testament in the gospel passages specifically narrating the events of the Passion Week of Jesus of Nazareth. And in addition of all the minor prophets, Zechariah is home to the greatest bulk of apocalyptic language. Seven different visions we are given were Zechariah, gets a view behind the scenes, as it were, <clears throat> behind the curtain veiling the separation of heaven and earth. These make up the largest portion of his message. And this morning, we will look at one of those seven visions. But before we do, let's pray one more time and ask for God's presence with us. Heavenly Father, we do now ask that you would be with us. However, we find ourselves this morning, perhaps we are here this morning and we are just looking for one sentence, one phrase, just one word that might bring us a sense of renewed hope uh, in our lives. There is, we, are, we, we need desperately to hear something. And the reality is that the truth is here we are meeting with the one who is the <coughs> word. Jesus, we are asking now that you would send your spirit that you would speak to us using these words that were written many, many years ago. Bring them to life by your Holy Spirit in our hearts, minds, and bodies. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. So are there uh, any tennis fans among, among us this morning? No tennis fans. One. Great. We're going to forego that illustration. Uh, the... Uh, Perhaps, even if you're not a tennis fan, you do know, I'm, I'm guessing, probably, that the U.S. Open has started back up. It's happening currently in my backyard in Queens. And uh, I was reminded uh, 
this past week of uh, one of my favorite tennis players of all time. Um, his name was Andre Agassi. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Okay, great. All right, this actually might work. <laughs> Andre Agassi was ranked, uh, he, he ranks ninth all time on the men's side uh, for the most weeks spent at the number one ranking in the world. He was a eight-time major winner. And in his autobiography entitled simply Open, Agassi spoke forthrightly about his experience as a professional tennis player and the pressure he felt to continuously prove and validate himself as a human being and his response to the never-ending critic and accuser in his head that he had to regularly defend himself against. In one section, he writes this. One time before a tournament, I had just given a half-hearted effort in practice. And as my driver was driving back to the hotel, I told him, pull over. Now, after I got out, I told him, drive two miles ahead and wait for me. I'm not done. I didn't give my best today. Agassiz then starts to run the two miles. And he continues in the book. He says, with every step, I'm close to passing out. But I don't care. This run, even if it brings on heat stroke, will give me peace of mind tonight in that all-important 10 minutes before I fall asleep. You see, I now live for that 10 minutes. I've been cheered by thousands. I've been booed by thousands. But nothing feels as bad as the booing inside your own head during those 10 minutes before you fall asleep. My sense is that many of us, if not most of us, can actually relate to that booing we hear in those 10 minutes before we fall asleep. Now our stage or our arena may not be as large as Agassiz and likely not a tennis court. Obviously there's only one of us that even appreciates tennis in this room. <laughs> but I believe that each of us has our own arena that serves as our own type of localized courtroom of sorts in our minds where you and I also spend much of the time feeling compelled to justify our worth to ourselves, to those close to us, or to the watching world. For some, it can be one's work and where and how you earn a living. Your accusers may be your boss or your coworkers. For others, this courtroom might be a relationship or even the pursuit of a relationship. Your entire worth as a human being hangs in the balance and a trial regularly takes place in your head and a case is made against you that you simply don't measure up either as a husband, or as a wife, or as a father, or as a mother, or for simply not even filling one of those roles at all. For others, the courtroom might be the world of academia and your studies. 
and your accusers might be your fellow students, your professors, or perhaps even a parent. Now, there is certainly nothing wrong with a healthy desire to simply grow and mature and develop as a human being in a variety of arena, arenas and relationships. But it sometimes becomes absolutely paralyzing when you and I seek to find and center the verdict of our ultimate value and worth as a human being in one particular role or arena as if it's a pass or fail or all or nothing verdict scenario. You see, if your worth as a human being created in the image of an infinite God and creator is directly and entirely tied to the gap in where you are right now in that place, in that relationship, in that role, and your personal perceived ideal of it and where you should be. You will constantly be adrift, like a boat cast around by howling wind and waves without an oar, without an udder, without a sail, and without an anchor. For that's really how it feels at the end of the day. And in those 10 minutes, before you and I fall asleep, as each one of us deals with some accusation in our head that we aren't smart enough, that we aren't beautiful enough, that we aren't rich enough, that we aren't successful enough. And so the question for each of us this morning is what is the arena of your particular courtroom? Where the critic, where the accusatory voices are the loudest and most incessant. And secondly, I would ask, how is your particular internal defense trial going against that accuser and accusation? In the passage that Matt read just a few moments ago, we are privy to a cosmic courtroom that I would make the case this morning has far greater capacity to impact you than any of the critics, any of the accusers you and I face in this material world in our minds. A courtroom whose deliberations have far greater consequences to you and to your life and to your well-being, both now and for all eternity, than the courtrooms in which we live most of our lives and spend most of our energy and time and resources and effort trying to offer a convincing defense, but often in a losing effort. And I would further make the case that the verdict rendered in that cosmic courtroom has far greater capacity to actually overturn and rebut and quiet the accusations made in our heads and to ultimately extinguish and eradicate the voices of those lesser mental courtroom battles. In chapter 3 of Zechariah, the veil separating heaven and earth is pulled back. And Zechariah, the prophet, has a front row seat to a scene that human beings are normally not privy to. Once a year, as you might remember, the high priest of Israel would enter into the most holy place within the tabernacle, later within the temple, 
to offer a sacrifice before the Lord on behalf of all of God's people. That most holy place was a place that no one was ever to enter other than the high priest. And he only once per year. And he only after an extensive purification process. In Exodus 28, we actually read about the instructions that were given for the high priest. And specifically the intricate details as to how he was even to be dressed when he entered. There we read, you shall make garments for Aaron and for the high priests for glory and for beauty. Furthermore, we read, you shall speak to all the skillful artists, the creative artisans, whom I, God speaking, have filled with my spirit of skill, that they shall make the high priest garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And finally, these artisans shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine twined linens skillfully and creatively worked. In other words, God was placing a great emphasis and attention to the glory and the beauty of the very garments that the high priest was to wear as he entered into the most holy place. And in addition, we are told that on his chest, written on his heart, were to be set in gold signets of 12 different types of precious stones, each with a particular name of one of the sons of Israel, so that each of the 12 tribes were named and all of God's people would be represented on his heart. Now fast forward to Zechariah's day where we are told the high priest at this time, his name is Joshua. And Zechariah is given access to the spiritual and heavenly realms that you and I can't see with our physical eyes. You see, while the temple was the place of God's closest dwelling with his people on earth, behind the veil of the most holy place was God's most acute, most holy presence and glory. It was, in essence, the very entrance into the holy cosmic throne of heaven and in God's presence himself. And the first thing Zechariah notes in this passage is that he saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand there to accuse him. To accuse him. Now the right hand would have been the place of the prosecutor in this courtroom. And that is where we find this one called the Satan. He is there to bring a case against Joshua and against the people of God. That's actually what his, the name, the word Satan means, adversary or accuser. It's why John in Revelation 12 calls the Satan the accuser and tells us that he is constantly, even now, standing before the throne of God day and night, tirelessly bringing accusations against God's people. Now, that might sound primitive and quaint to you that we speak of some evil spiritual being by name. But the truth is, reality is, polls demonstrate still 
that even now, more than 80% of Americans actually believe there is some kind of spiritual world out there. Not without necessarily defining it. That there's actually at least some kind of power or force behind the scenes, whether you call him or her or it, God or something else. And if that's true, would it really be all that surprising that there would be some force for evil in that spiritual realm? After all, when it comes down to it, isn't it just possible that the accusations that arise in your head, in my head, that relentlessly return again and again are actually fueled by something more than simply the synapses firing back and forth within the gray matter between our ears? Isn't that possible? That at least is the claim being made here by Zechariah. And it's a claim made by the rest of Scripture. That the personification of evil here plays the role of accuser and prosecutor and that his work as the adversary of God's people is unrelenting. But note furthermore that this accuser doesn't accuse you and me before the throne because he's vexed by your or my sin. He's not accusing us because it offends him so much in the ways that we offend a good, benevolent, and holy God. He doesn't care about that one bit. Rather, the Bible makes the case that he simply wants to frustrate as much as he can your ability and my ability as followers of Jesus, to regularly live moment by moment with the settled conviction and assurance that our greatest issue, our sin, that is all of the ways that we have failed in the past and will fail again in the future, to fully live as a benevolent human being before the one in whose image we're created has completely been taken care of. Forever. And we now stand with full forgiveness and acceptance in the very most holy place. That frustrates our enemy and our, the accuser. Our adversary hates it. When you and I bask in the wonder and the glory of the privilege of knowing the full communion of our Creator, in our genuine, palpable comprehension that God Himself is the one who we are told in verse 3 wholeheartedly and himself constantly and unashamedly and fervently and emphatically rebukes our adversary, our worst adversary on our behalf. So how is he able to do that? What is our advocate's argument? Does he simply overlook the ways that you and I have failed? Does he simply pretend that it never happened or it's just it's really not that bad? Zechariah next observes in this scene something that must have been absolutely shocking and repugnant to the original audience, who would have been fully aware of the instructions given to the high priest and how to present himself in this place. Far from the high priest, Joshua's garments being resplendent and brilliant and glorious and beautiful. 
Zachariah is told when he looks and sees him, he says his garments are literally covered in dung. At least that's the PG version of what Zachariah observes in this passage. And for him to show up in that holy cosmic courtroom with those garments, only by God's mercy was Joshua even able to enter this holy place and not perish with those garments. And therefore, notice that the rebuke and the defense by the angel of the Lord in this passage is not based on an argument that the accuser's actual accusation is ill-founded or baseless. That's not his argument. That's not the basis of the rebuke. His offense, even Joshua's, wasn't to try to tell himself and the court that it was all actually okay. The courtroom didn't simply look the other way long enough for Joshua to feel good about himself. And certainly it was too late for Joshua to try to cover himself by his own wearisome and tiresome efforts. No, verses 4 and 5, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove these filthy garments from him. And him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them also put a turban, a clean turban, or the word could be translated crown, on his head. So they put a clean turban and a crown on his head and they clothed him with garments. Joshua's given a whole new wardrobe, a whole new dress. He was clothed by someone else who was able to pronounce in front of his absolute worst accuser that he was now, in fact, clean, beautiful, radiant, and a delight. There was absolutely nothing left to accuse him for. My friends, at the end of the day, that's exactly what we all need now. We all need someone else to pronounce that type of verdict over us. Because you and I, on our own, will never be able to silence our accusers or the accuser in our hearts and minds. Look, there is, there is so much that we can learn from the world of psychology and psychiatry have personally have benefited. But the truth is the worst of pop psychology is actually utterly and ultimately unhelpful and simplistic here. Because we'll leave you to believe that the, the defense against all of your adversaries, your critics, whoever they are, whatever it is, is found within you. That your best defense is something you come up with on your own from inside of you. That you're good enough. That you actually are smart enough. That all that is necessary is already inside of you. You just need to convince yourself and ultimately your problem is a low self-esteem. Now there is a huge difference between appropriately being kind to yourself in an acknowledgement that you are created in the image of a good eternal God on the one hand. And being fully equipped and supplied on your own to be able to mount a convincing defense against your worst accusers or accuser on the other hand. There's a big difference. And silencing the accuser is much more than simply willing yourself to believe you're good enough if you just repeat it over and over and over. 
No, the honest and unvarnished truth is that when you and I look in the mirror, we know we don't see ourselves yet in the full glory that one day God's image bearers will fully display. And we also know that we are ultimately powerless to do anything about that in a way that really matters. And so what we ultimately and absolutely need is someone from outside of ourselves, someone who is in a place of ultimate and cosmic authority to even do so, to pronounce a verdict over us that fully exonerates us and makes us completely clean. And my friends, that's, that's what we genuinely now have access to in Jesus Christ, through his work, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. And so the passage of Zechariah continues in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you, that is the high priest and representative of God's people, will walk in my ways, keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And brothers and sisters, there is only one person who has ever fully and perfectly fulfilled all of the just commands of God and followed him faithfully. He is the one who is the greater high priest. He is the greater Joshua. Or Yeshua. The same word. Or Yezu. Or Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus Christ. He is the high priest par excellence. As Paul tells us, as we read earlier to the church in Corinth, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. In other words, a verdict has been rendered because of a transaction that has taken place. That whereas our Joshua, our Jesus, walked into the heavenly holy place with garments marred by the ugliness of our own misdeeds, of our own sin, our own moral filth, longer represented by those ugly garments. We no longer wear them. All of that has been removed. Even our worst rags of sin have been replaced with garments of splendor. As great as what you right now believe to be the worst thing about you, that sin, that one act, or even that season of ugly acts, all of that right now in Christ Jesus is not what God sees when he looks on you in his holy courtroom. None of it. Now I may be breaking disappointing news to many of you here who since coming to faith in Jesus have been under the assumption that the sacrificial system <laughs> and the need for a high priest has been done away with. That we don't actually believe that antiquated idea anymore. But the writer of the book to the Hebrews would argue differently. He writes that unlike all previous high priests, the greater Joshua, that is Jesus, has appeared once for all. Not once a year. Once for all. At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to fully save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
That same writer further writes, Since then we have a greater high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the very Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to our confession. This verdict, being once for all, is an objectively true verdict. It's not based on a false premise. It's not some sentimental God has for you. It's not fluff. It's so true that as our worst adversary tries to continue to accuse us when we are down, when we are tired, when we are stumbling, our great advocate steps before the throne and silences the accuser and demands justice on our behalf. You see, Jesus, our great advocate, makes the case before that heavenly, holy, cosmic throne that to continue to hold it over your head, to continue to punish you for it, to continue for you to feel down, would be unjust because he's fully paid for. He's dealt with it all forever. And he signed the dismissal and exonerating documents. It is finished. It is accomplished. Close with this. Charity Lees Bancroft, a name you're probably not familiar with. I wasn't even familiar until I looked this up. Wrote a, but, I, but you're familiar with her work. Wrote a beautiful description in a poem in 1863. That became a song that was originally published under the name The Advocate. And the song actually went dormant for about 100 years, but was represented, kind of resurrected in the early 70s. The first two verses go like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And then when Satan, the accuser, tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. My friends, in those 10 minutes before you fall asleep, there could be no greater thing, no greater thought than to recount the argument made in the heavenly places before your worst accuser by your greatest advocate. Because he died, your soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for the efforts, the means you have gone through in order 
to silence our greatest accusers and our greatest accuser. Jesus, may we once again, maybe even for the thousandth time, believe this truth. May we believe it perhaps even for the very first time this morning. But Father, help us to believe that this actually is true. That we actually have an advocate on our behalf that has taken care of our greatest issue in this life and all of eternity and now stands before your throne regularly arguing and defending us on our behalf. Help us to believe this. We pray for Christ's sake.